Today we're going to continue in our series through 2 Timothy. You may uh, want to take your Bible and turn there to uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 26 will be the focal point. You'll be reminded that in this series it's all about entrusting the faith to the next generation, which fits perfectly with our emphasis here these next few weeks because we're in trying to entrust to the next generation both uh, our children and their leaders and those who will serve and shepherd them in the church and in the world, these, uh, these great truths that have been entrusted to us in the gospel. And the gospel gives us amazing power for change. We, however, must pursue that with wholeheartedness and with zeal. This comes out loud and clear in Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul, you'll recall, is in prison. He's in a, uh, a tough place. He's taken a stand for the gospel, and it's landed him in jail. And he's writing to his young protege, encouraging him to finish the race and go all the way to the end, being faithful to the Lord. Within that context, Paul is admonishing Timothy to take a stand for truth in a way that brings change in practical ways in people's lives. We have to pursue that. There is power for change, power for personal change. In a broad context, all of us entering into a new year in 2013 want to to bring change into our lives. I don't know about you. I, I want to grow up before I grow old. I want to change. I want to become a more mature follower of Christ. And to do that, I need, first of all, to become his pure vessel. Read with me chapter 2 of Paul's second letter to Timothy, beginning in verse 20. He says there in a large house, a great house, there are articles or vessels, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes. Some are for honorable use. And some are for ignoble purposes or dishonorable use. Paul launches here with an illustration that's really very easy to grasp. Now, whether you're wealthy and living in a great house like, you know, Downton Abbey Light, now that the Steelers are no longer, you know, in the picture, you can all admit that you're watching uh, uh, the best British soap opera on television, Downton Abbey. Are you anybody familiar with that? You are? Yeah, sure you are. In a large house, a great house, Paul says, there's lots of vessels, lots of of articles. And and whether you're living in a great house like Downton Abbey or you're a missionary on leave and you're in uh, an efficiency apartment, the point here is that we have vessels in our house, articles, and when we have guests over, we tend to put the, uh, the indiscreet ones away, do we not? We put on the Ritz when we have guests over. You put the ironing board away. At least I hope you do. You tidy up a bit, do you not? You use your best stuff. You get grandma's china out. You get grandma's silver out. And you don't serve your spaghetti in the mop bucket, right? You get that five-piece all-clad thing from Williams-Sonoma. I went to the website. It's $1,600 for five pieces of, of, of cookery. On sale, currently $9.99. If you hurry, you might be able to get some. You use your good stuff, do you not? Or maybe farberware from Target. 
But you, you, you don't use your, 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 your pooper scooper to toss the salad. We have a very large one in our house because we have, as you know, Ruskis, the Labrador wide receiver. He's very productive. We have a very large, we wouldn't use that. You, you, you use your, your one spoon for, for Xmas Christmas gravy, right? You use your, your, your fine spoon for that, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't use that spoon then to dole out the Alpo. And Paul is making a, a very simple point here. God has created us as human beings and and he's redeemed us by his mercy and grace and he wants us to use our lives for honorable, noble purposes, to be vessels in his household that are used for for honorable purposes. Now in a church setting and in this household, we don't really ultimately know who all the believers are and who all the unbelievers aren't. But Paul says to Timothy, you, Timothy, you're a believer. You cleanse yourself from ignoble purposes. He says, therefore, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, that is what is dishonorable, he'll then become an instrument or a vessel for noble purposes, made holy, that is, set apart as holy unto the Lord, useful to the master of the house, prepared, ready for every good work, to do any kind of good work that God is calling you to do, that he perhaps has prepared in advance for you to do. Now, to accomplish this, we have to flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with these, along with those rather, who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, the point that Paul is making here is is really very clear. The gospel prepares cleansed vessels of honor for good works, just as we heard Jeanette share. God has uniquely prepared her, Judy, and that team. God has uniquely prepared the, the choices team and the, the, the other ministries that we're involved with here to do good works. How does he do that? How does he do it? The gospel powers first flight from youthful passions, evil desires that, that come naturally to us because we have been born into sin. These impulses that we've inherited them. In, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. There isn't any uh, difficulty in stirring up all of those natural, evil, youthful passions in any human heart. And Paul says we need to first flee from these things. Now, what does he mean by youthful passions? Well, first he means sexual misconduct, lust, which gives birth to behavior that is contrary to God's word, taking an honorable thing created by God, using it in a dishonorable way. Now, it's no secret that young people have sexual impulses. Hello? You know, we, we, we all do. We're created in the image and likeness of God. You know, God created sex, did he not? It's not like he's up there in heaven, you know, Billy Crystal. Imagine Billy Crystal walking back and forth going, Oy they, what are they up to? What are they going to do next? No, he invented our sexuality. But like fire in a fireplace that is intended to provide warmth and comfort and procreation when it remains in the fireplace, it's a beautiful, it's a holy, and it's a good thing. When it gets outside the fireplace, what happens? The house burns down. 
And Paul is saying that our sexuality must be cleansed from lust, from sexual misconduct. Secondly, the sins of youth, the youthful passions, are clearly seen in anger and and, and the fruit of anger, which is, is of course, violence. Hot-headed boys, hot-headed girls uh, can oftentimes display this tendency when they're on the athletic field. You know, a technical foul doesn't do your team any good, does it? This sinful passion of the youth is sometimes a motivation for a good cause, but uh, it goes awry. It hurts the effort because the individual is is hot-headed. They're not calm under fire. They're angry. Perhaps they're quarrelsome. And that kind of quarrelsomeness sets a good cause back. I remember uh, the church I pastored in New Jersey, they had a story, and we would have, of course, Pro-Life Sunday uh, once, uh, once or twice a year. We would focus on that, and, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the stories that was circulated from previous years before I had gotten there was of a, of a young boy who heard a, an impassioned sermon on uh, fleeing youthful lust and the dangers of pornography, and down at the end of the street, on the same street as the church, was one of those um, adult stores that uh, really isn't for adults, it's for immature men filled with pornography. And he was so fired up by the message that he was headed over there with a tank of gasoline, and he was going to burn that place down. You know, that, there, there's, a, there's a right cause there. He's wanting to eradicate evil, which enslaves people and harms them and hurts them and hurts women and hurts men and take a courageous stand for truth. But he was going about it in a hot-headed way and in a misguided way. The sinful passions of youth manifest in a lot of different ways. Lust and anger are just two. By the way, dads, when, when your immature, youthful passions carry on with you into midlife crises, they can become end-of-spiritual-life train wrecks. We see that all the time. We see that even with our, our own political leaders. Our own president almost made a, a, a giant train wreck of his presidency because the sinful passions of youth carried on into his, his adult life. So we have to flee these things. This is the first step for the gospel to take real root in us, in our children, is we need to create a, a family, a culture that makes a habit of fleeing youthful passions. Secondly... The gospel fuels pursuit of right living. That is, righteousness, right relationship with God, right relationship with our neighbors, faith, love, and peace. We need to displace an inferior pleasure with a superior pleasure. We have to supplant youthful passions with a passion for God. It's not enough to flee youthful lust. We must pursue righteousness. It's not enough to run away from situations that cause us anger and and cause us to boil over. We have to actually be peace chasers, chasing after peace. Third, the gospel enfolds you and me together into a place, the church, into a community. 
There's a companionship of, of people who call on the Lord with or from or out of, Paul says, a pure heart. We're called into that company. And when we hear that call and get involved in the company of Jesus Christ, the church, we change. So we flee youthful lust, we pursue righteousness, love, peace, and we get enfolded into a place of community where we can grow. You know, you can't really follow the Lord in isolation. You got to get involved in God's people, God's community, God's church. It's just the bottom line. Otherwise, you're going to be entangled for the rest of your life. Now, the church is full of sinners. We often forget that. Someone said once, the church is full of hypocrites. I can't go. My response to that is, of course the church is full of hypocrites. What did you expect? One more won't hurt. Come on and join us. We're all sinners here. There are no sinners emeritus. The gospel, however, gives us power for change. Power for change. And it creates in us this yearning, this desire to grow to be his pure vessel. We're in the middle of our sanctification. Me as well, by the way. And churches sometimes have totally unrealistic expectations of their pastors. You know, pastors need the church too. Pastors need sanctification too. I'm in the middle of my sanctification just as you are. But God is purifying us, is he not? It takes effort. We have to pursue it. We have to flee the things of the world. And we have to get together in that community where God purifies and transforms us. You know, we don't have to take this beautiful vessel that God has given us in and through Christ by his grace and use it for uh, dishonorable purposes, do we? No, we don't have to do that. God's power, God's gospel sets us free. Secondly, there's power for change, for personal change, so that we speak with his patient voice to those outside the community of God. And even to those inside the community of God, uh, the community of God uh, with whom we have conflict. And that's really the setting of this passage. False teaching in the church. There's tons of false teaching in the church. We just prayed our litany a little bit ago about praying for the mainline denominations that, that, they would, that they would repent of the false teaching that they've promulgated in the church. It's a terrible curse on the church to believe that what is created by God's grace, by the spirit of the living God, this, this life that's, that's created in his image is somehow subject to your own will. It's a terrible lie that unfortunately has been promulgated in churches. It's odd for us maybe to, uh, to even think about that, but, but that's the case. And there's controversy in churches oftentimes over these issues. Well, how do we deal with controversy? How do we deal with our opponents, both in the church and outside in the world? This is so hugely important. Obviously, we don't, we don't take a, a five-gallon jug of gasoline like our, our, our young, hot-headed friend in New Jersey and head down to the, you know, and blow something up. Craziness can happen if we're not controlled by the Holy Spirit. Paul is very concerned that we speak with Jesus' patient voice. Look at verse 22. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid. I love this. I love the fact that Paul uses the word stupid. 
Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Because you know, they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant, that would be me and you, us together, must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Now this word translated in the NIV, resentful, is one Greek word that has this idea. And you need to hear it. Ready? Patiently enduring evil without resentment. That's what that word, that one Greek word, translated resentful means. Patiently enduring evil without resentment. So here's the point. The gospel gives us power to patiently endure evil without resentment. Praise God. How? First, it steers us clear of dumb controversies. Controversies over words show our ignorance. You know, articles for, uh, for God's use need to be cleansed of, of dumb controversies. I remember once I wrote a, a newspaper uh, editorial for my college paper. I was a new Christian. Um, I labored on the article. It, it, in, in God's mercy and grace, it was okay. The, uh, the, the chaplain of the college who was very uh, pro-abortion was uh, complimenting me on the article even though my position was directly opposite to his. I used uh, such logic as, as I could come up with and such reasoning from scripture that I could summarize. I did my best. I was a young student and I got it in the paper. Even a professors complimented me on the, on the way that I handled it and, and, and said that though they didn't agree with me, they, they respected that I, would, that I would put it out there. Well, I was feeling pretty good about myself until I attended the, uh, the women's collective, the feminist collective. And there I sat in the middle of, of 30 ladies who were not really happy with the article that I had written in the college paper. The, the, the collective was, was chaired by a, a lesbian woman, and, and, and somehow I managed somehow to get out of there, keeping my cool and, and escaping without creating a further controversy. But what a foolish, silly thing for me to do to try to enter into that place. And, and all I ended up doing really was provoke them to anger and hatred and had then had to deal with it without coming off in a hot-headed way. Somehow I got out of there without making too much of a, of a mess of things. This takes some wisdom, does it not, to, to walk out our faith in the public square. Remember another occasion, a good friend of mine took me to a, 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 a sit-down in front of a clinic, an abortion clinic, and we, we sat there, and it was uh, God's people from a variety of, of churches and denominations, and, and we, we were sitting there literally saying the Lord's Prayer and singing hymns. The goal, of course, was to slow down and protest and slow down the flow of, of, of clients going into the thing. And he was actively involved with this. He warned me that at a certain point the police would come and, and, uh, and uh, you'd be arrested. And I said, I don't know if I can do that. You know, I'm not sure I'm going to jail here, but I'll, I'll, I'll go and sit down with you. Well, we did. We, we locked arms. And there was a, a rather hostile assault team from a, a group called ACT UP, which was a, a, a bodybuilding group. They were huge, strong. They were militant 
um, militant uh, gay men, and they were physically trying to remove us from the sidewalk. It got really scary. I mean, there I was with these like, little Catholic ladies, you know, who were praying the rosary, and these evangelical guys who were clinging on to their Bible, and there we were locked arm in arm in the public square on a public sidewalk, singing to God and just trying not to get involved in any kind of, of, of riot. I mean, the, the intensity in the moment got really, really hot. At a certain point, the police were there on horses. I'm getting a little nervous, and I'm thinking in my head, you know, Romans 13, obey the, the authorities. It's the law of the land. So at a certain point, I said, See you, brother. He was a six foot eight, big, strong guy, a former missionary from Morocco. And I said, See ya. And off he went to jail. And I went and climbed a tree and watched it unfold. You know, we have to be very, very wise in how we deal with the world. The world does not embrace our worldview, they don't get it. And Paul is clear why that is. We'll get there in just a moment. But the point is that the gospel empowers us to patiently endure evil without resentment. It does that by stealing, steering us clear from dumb controversies, and then it grows our patience with difficult people. Patiently enduring evil without resentment may seem a little remote, but, but one translation of this verse is that the, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone be able to teach, and then be patient with difficult people. Now, I'm a difficult person, so I'm asking you to be patient with me. Being patient with difficult people is not easy, at least for me. It's much easier for Susie. She's had 30 years of practice dealing with a difficult person. I'm comforted by the fact that God's grace, however, is at work to grow the fruit of the Spirit in me and in you. And I am stunned to silence when I think of the Lord Jesus Christ. A barrage of insults. They spat in his face. They bashed his holy head. They crammed thorns into his brow. They falsely accused him. They unjustly condemned him. They tortured him. Yet he did not answer in anger. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he uttered not a word. May his meekness, may his patience with difficult situations and difficult people be a part of, of, of our hearts collectively as God's people. Thirdly, the gospel makes you and me less demanding. So we have power for personal change to become his pure vessel and speak then with his patient voice. And finally, the power for change through the gospel comes through receiving his powerful victory won on our behalf. Look with me at verse 25. Those who oppose him, the Lord's servant, he must gently instruct in the hope, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, that is a turning, a change of mind, and a change of behavior, a turning back to God and away from sin, repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Now notice that the knowledge of the truth follows repentance. 
I think sometimes we expect people to acknowledge the truth before they've repented, and we wonder why they have difficulty doing that. Well, Paul answers why they have difficulty doing that in verse 26. He says, and that they will come to their senses. They're sort of out of their minds. They haven't yet come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who holds this world in its control. Do you realize there is a divine drama going on behind the scenes? God is going to win. I've read the end of the book. Jesus really did die on the cross. He really did rise from the dead. He's coming back. Righteousness and justice will come onto the earth. But there's a battle going on right now. It's raging for the hearts of men and women. Next week, we'll take a deeper look into this battle, sort of a 20,000-foot uh, uh, view of the anti-life versus pro-life battle that's just been absolutely raging in so many ways across the globe for decades. All of that is because the devil has ensnared and trapped people. But the gospel can change any heart. We sang a hymn earlier, Amazing Grace, written by a former slave trader. The gospel can change any heart. How? Well, for those who oppose you, gentle instruction works best. Gentle instruction works best. For those who oppose God, he can turn them around too. We need to trust God, the sovereign king to change their heart, to grant this incredible, precious gift of repentance, leading to an experiential knowledge of God. Not just sort of an abstract knowledge, but a true entering into an experiential knowledge of, of God. So that when God changes the heart and the mind, that truth then brings about volcanic change in the human life. But it's God's work. Our job is to gently instruct. A changed heart will work its way out in changed thinking, a desire to embrace the truth, and over time, progressively, just like the rest of us, into righteous behavior. There really are people who are entrapped in sin all around us. But the gospel proclaims hope for rescue. Let's pray. Father, we know that you desire to rescue those who are ensnared in the devil's trap. They don't even know they are. There's a worldview that has bound the mind. There is a spiritual dimension that is powerful. There's a warfare spiritually that we just seem to touch and glimpse at times. We see the effects. We don't, we don't see into the spiritual realm, but we know that there is a, a great battle raging. And we pray, Father, that as a church community, that we would wage this spiritual battle according to your guidelines and instructions, that we would be part of the Lamb's War, that we would have that meekness, that humility, to speak the truth in love, to give gentle instruction and trust you for the results. Oh God, will you bring a turning and a repentance to this country and to your church that the Lord Jesus might be honored. Amen.